Well, Father, we are so grateful that we can be here today on a Sunday morning and hear from your word. Father, your word is truth. Your word reveals you to us. It discloses life direction. It protects us. And we pray that your word will minister to us greatly today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was fall of 1907, and a three-year-old boy by the name of Alexei Romanov was playing in Alexander Park when he fell and hurt himself. Now, normally that's not that big of a deal because that's what three-year-olds do. But Alexei was different because he suffered from hemophilia, which is a disease that prevents the clotting of blood. And the life expectancy for someone with that condition in that day and age was about 12 years. And so this was a life-threatening emergency because it had an internal hemorrhage which could potentially bleed out. Now his mother, Alexandra, was distressed by this. Not only was this her baby boy, but after having four daughters, this was the first son that she had. And more than that, he was also the crown prince of Russia. See, Alexandra, for a long time, was a royal outsider. She was raised in Germany. Uh, she was actually the granddaughter of Queen Victoria, apparently her favorite granddaughter. And when she married into the Romanov family and became the Tsarina, the Queen of Russia, she was regarded as an outsider. She was reluctant to adopt the Russian religion. Uh, she did not speak Russian very well. And with each successive birth of a daughter, many people wondered what was she doing here. And on top of this, apparently she was kind of shy and aloof and viewed as arrogant. And so having a son was her ticket to credibility. And so what did she do? Well, uh, she prayed, turned to religion, studied the Russian Orthodox faith. She even had a private chapel, and she'd spend hours a day interceding for her son that he might live. Eventually, she heard rumors, and she actually previously met a, a certain holy man who claimed to have the power to heal. She contacted a relative, and the holy man was dispatched to see her. Uh, this was a man who looked like John the Baptist, who had mesmerizing blue eyes. And he went into the chamber where Alexei lay. He laid hands on him, prayed, and said, Your pain is going away. You will soon be well. You must thank God for healing you. And now, go to sleep. And if by, as if by some miracle... The boy's health turned the corner the next day. And this holy man told Alexandra that the fate of this little boy and the Romanov dynasty rest in my ability to heal him. And the grateful parents welcomed him into the family. You might have heard of this man, Grigory Rasputin, one of the arch villains of history whose influence ultimately brought about the downfall of the Romanovs. He's actually a profile of what we're about to read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. For among them 
are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. Now previously, Paul is listing off a certain group of individuals who are lovers of themselves. He gives that laundry list of all the ways to express that self-love, concluding with the fact that they are lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God, and they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And he says, avoid them, avoid them. But here he goes on to describe the tactics that they use, and it's very clear and evident that these lovers of self are preying upon certain people in their church and frankly are quite successful. They are individuals who, like Rasputin, are empowered and commissioned by Satan to destroy the church from the inside. Now, the last two days at our church, we had a security training. I've heard a lot of great feedback about it. Many of our frontline workers, people who work the parking lot, the ushers, nursery workers, were basically equipped and trained to learn how to identify threats, how to de-escalate situations to keep us physically safe, right? It's just the day and age that we live in. Well, today I want to do a different kind of security training. I call it soul security, the name of my message. And there may not be a Rasputin in your life, but we know from Scripture, 1 Peter 5, 8 specifically, that you need to be sober-minded and be watchful Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan's objective, the devil's objective, is to pull you away from the faith and to capture you, much like Rasputin did with the royal family. And that led to the downfall of their dynasty. But to be captured by one of these men, these representatives of Satan, will lead to a downfall of your Christian faith and the destruction of your soul. And so if you want to be secure, right, you need to know what you're dealing with. You need to identify the threat. And you do this by this three-point outline that I have for you. You understand the tactics, you identify the targets, and you know the type. And then afterwards, I'm going to give you some bonus commands, okay? But to have soul security, it begins with you understand the tactics. Look at verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Now, now previously, remember how these people, these self-lovers, have a form of godliness. They are disguised, and they're able to creep in. Blend in. You think about Judas, all right? Nobody knew that he was the bad guy. They thought it was more likely that they were the ones who betrayed Jesus, not Judas. He was able to creep in. Look at Jude 1.4 where we see a similar word for creep. Jude 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. 
ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, it makes sense that if you want to breach the security of the church, you need to creep in. You need to disguise yourself. Right? A heretic is not going to say, or post on Facebook, power drunk, egotistical, totalitarian narcissist, seeking for some mindless lemmings to brainwash and control. Personal message me if you're interested. Right? That direct approach doesn't necessarily work. You think about Rasputin, how he ingratiated himself as he did something genuinely good and helpful for the royal family. And what's interesting is historians, they can't deny the fact that Alexei was helped. And, and what some speculate is that many of the doctors at the time would always prescribe aspirin as this wonder drug. And by Rasputin saying, don't listen to the doctors and separating Alexei from the doctors, he separated Alexei from aspirin and managed to heal the child that way. But whatever the reason, Alexandra was grateful for this man who has done so much good so that when his debauchery became known to all, she wouldn't believe it. They call this grooming. False teachers groom their victims. Consider the case of, of Julie Jones. She was a 40-something homemaker who struggled with her weight for as long as she could remember. She tried every diet under the sun. None of them seemed to work until she came across a dietitian, a Christian dietitian by the name of Gwen Chamblin who had a biblically-based way-down workshop. And these are her words to describe the impact of this way-down workshop. Then I found Gwen. I opened the way-down diet. I knew then and there that it was going to change my life forever. It really saved me. I was in despair. I felt ugly and fat. And my husband had lost all interest in me. I made it quite clear, he made it quite clear that, if I, that, that he did not want to touch me until I got the weight off. I thought, I may as well just end it, you know. Like that, that just didn't seem worth living. In Julie's mind, she believes that she owed Gwen Shamblin her life. And that was a common story with way-downers. They all saw Gwen as more than a dietitian, but as a spiritual leader. And then Gwen made some public statements where she explicitly denied the Trinity, saying that God the Father and God the Son are two separate beings. And she was able to pull many of her way-downers into her orbit. Right? This is grooming. You watch HDTV and there is this show about this woman who's funny, authentic, married to a pastor. You just, you just love her. You feel like she's your best friend. But then she comes out and advocates for a sexual ethic that's contrary to scripture. And you take it seriously because how can someone who's so fun and, and so winsome and so helpful be so wrong? Or you're listening to a, a podcast and they speak about the concerns of a big government 
the threat of the left, the need to recover Christianity, the need to defend the unborn. But then they start talking about a a secret Satan-worshipping pedophile ring consisting of Hollywood elites and media and political elites. And you're wondering, well, this guy's been so helpful. How can he be wrong when we agree on so much? Or you get into multi-level marketing. <laughs> and you, are, you love the community, the conferences. You, the product's been personally helpful, but next thing you know, you are in crippling debt because you have purchased so much. You have been groomed to the point where they get you. Look at 3.6 again. For among them are those who creep into households and, keyword, capture Greek women. They capture Greek women. The word capture speaks of POWs, right? Is what you, they, they would capture a POW. They are under their control. And given the context, it's very clear that there is an element of psychological enslavement and control. I mean, Rasputin had such a hold on the royal family that he was actually appointing cabinet ministers and church officials. They did not believe that they could exist without him. He had that kind of control over their life. And you might even have known people or have known people who have been in those, uh, we'll just call them abusive situations where they can't make their own decisions they rely on the other person, and they have this weird sense where I can't cross this individual. They are under their control, and they are captured. And to have effective social security, you basically need to know that the person who's grooming you, who is capturing you, is actually the bad guy. And so often, and this breaks my heart, where you see someone who's in this bad news relationship and you're warning them, I'm not sure about this guy. I'm not sure about this person. And that person turns your opposition into a reason why they're a martyr and nobody understands and why they're right, and they just pull you into their orbit. If people you love are telling you, I don't know about this person. Have you guys been in this situation on the other side? They're saying, I don't know about this person. Don't dismiss it. Sometimes things are just too good to be true. That person who's creeping in to capture you, you may not detect it. Secondly, you need to identify the targets. Look at verse 6b. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. I mean, these false teachers, they have targets in mind. The first thing that we notice, okay, and, and bear with me here as I support this, is that they're wealthy. When it says it creeps into households, it'd be better to translate it as they creep into the households. These are specific households, households that Timothy would know, well-known households. These are estates. Now, it would make sense why a false teacher would want to creep into an estate because that's where the money is. I mean, Rasputin, he hit the jackpot because Alexandra was married to one of the richest men who ever lived. 
But I think there's another reason why they're, they're targeted and why there's a unique vulnerability. Uh, cult researchers, they say that, according to studies, cult members are disproportionately from middle to upper class households, the advantaged segments of the population. Isn't that interesting? Usually, if you find somebody who's part of a cult, they're usually they're wealthier than your average American. I think there's a reason for this. It's not necessarily the money, although that's part of it because they're targeted for that. When you're wealthy, you have more time. When you're wealthy, you have extra time. You have time to spare. And if you go back to 1 Timothy, Paul is warning about giving money to young widows for this reason. According to 1 Timothy 5.13, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. And these actions lead to a falling away from the faith. So you may not be wealthy, but if you have a stable enough life where you can have a lot of free time, you can be vulnerable. And you look at how would a false teacher creep in. They may not walk through the doors of the church, but they might walk through the portal of your iPhone. You watch their podcast. You read their books. You develop a relationship that way, and you're able to kind of look at all the videos, read all the books, do all your own research, be a part of the chat rooms, and before you know it, you're captured. They're captured. We also see that they were weak women. Now, we need to be careful and not take this as a broad statement that women are weak and therefore more likely to be deceived. But it is true that this is the situation on the ground. And I think there's, um, there's probably something to the man-woman dynamic, okay? It's usually the case that in a man-woman relationship, the man has an easier time dominating the woman than the other way around. It's easier for a man to capture a woman than the other way around. That's not to say that it doesn't happen the other way too. But cult researchers have noticed that 70% of cult members are women. There are ways that men know how to control the opposite gender. Yeah, and this is why, single ladies, you need to be very careful of who you date. And should the guy show controlling tendencies, you need to back off. Talk to an elder, talk to your parents. We will help you do that. But that is the truth. You look at Rasputin, he was able to ingratiate himself into the royal family through the channel of the Tsarina, Queen Alexandra. And some of the tactics are they were not only weak, but one of the reasons why they were weak is they were burdened with sins. And the grammar suggests that they were burdened with past sins. Alexandra, for instance, when she was praying over her son, she was convinced that it was her sin that led to her son's sickness. She also had hemophilia. She believed that she was being punished, and part of the punishment was injecting hemophilia into the royal line of the Romanov family. And, and she felt guilty, and that guilt 
leaves you vulnerable for a number of reasons. So I'll give you three. Number one, when you're burdened by sins, you often feel like you're disqualified from decision-making. I counsel many men and many couples. Some of, them, uh, some of the men fall into sexual sin, pornography being the chief one among them. And what's really fascinating is that those men, because of the guilt they bear in their sin, do not feel like they can lead their families. They don't believe they can step up and say things or speak truth, right? They're disqualified. And so if you're somebody who's burdened by sin, you might feel like you are not qualified to make any spiritual decision and you look to somebody else to make the decision for you. See the vulnerability? Secondly, you are open to manipulation. People can use your sin against you. After all I've done for you and all you've done to me, this is what you do. Go ahead and go out with your friends. I'll, I'll clean up the mess you made. If you loved me, you'd give me your body to me, just like you gave it to your ex-boyfriend. If you love God, you'll give to this ministry. If you love God, you will respect me as his teacher. I can't believe you betrayed me after all you've done to me. Oh, see it? And thirdly, being burdened by sin gives you a sense of shame and guilt. When you have unaddressed sin in your life, and it could be anything, secret internet habit, perhaps a past affair, some form of sexual morality, you might have stolen something from work, and you just have this sense of guilt and shame, and you haven't dealt with it biblically, you haven't gone to the Lord, perhaps confessed to who you need to confess to, and you believe, and probably rightly so, that God is estranged from you, right? The Bible says, Psalm 66, 18, if I regarded iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And so instead of turning to God for spiritual comfort because of the guilt of your sin that's been unaddressed, you will turn to the person who plays God in your life and do what he says instead of what the Lord says. When you don't deal with your sin biblically, you, you're spiritually vulnerable. We see that we're not only burdened by sin, but led astray by various passions. And the word passion here, by and large, refers to giving into the sexual impulse. Rasputin practiced a religion where he taught his followers that you are nearest to God when you experience a feeling of holy passionlessness. When sin doesn't have a hold on you. And the way to experience holy passionlessness is through sexual exhaustion, through debauchery. And then at the end of it, you feel close to God. Talk about enslaving. He was able to get people to sin more to increase the burden of guilt so that he could control them. Moving on to verse 7, they're always learning, always learning. They're seeking more and more information. Now, you would think that being smart would keep you from joining a cult, right? Isn't that, yeah, I'm too smart to be a part of that. That's just for the dupes and those who are easily brainwashed. 
But one cult expert, he notes this, with few exceptions, studies have found that recruits to new religious movements are on average markedly better educated than the general public. Why is that? Well, somebody who is smart is often more open to new ideas. They don't immediately just say something is out of hand. And, and when you are part of, let's say, Scientology, and they're giving you this whole narrative and how this whole thing works, somebody who has maybe a higher intelligence would want to be more reasonable will not immediately reject that truth for what it is. They will process all the arguments before they criticize and abandon it. And I'll talk more about this a little bit later on. You see that they often never are able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Now, if we assume that these are church-going women who have been duped into this, what we see is that they eventually do all this learning, but they don't embrace the gospel. It's kind of like you're driving on the freeway, looking for Flint Hills Christian Church, and you drive right past this exit. But you are convinced that you haven't approached the exit yet. How long will you continue to drive? You might be in Minnesota before you get a clue, right? So if you are searching for truth, and the gospel on-ramp is right here, and you say, that's not where we're going to go, how far will you keep on driving? See, a lot of times people will get into a religion and they think that, well, I am not satisfied with the answers given by the gospel. There has to be something more. I need to learn more. I've seen people swim the wrong way across the Tiber where they decide that the gospel's not enough. Surely there's more to satisfy and quench my robust appetite for learning. And so they get into Roman Catholic scholarship. And they plunge themselves into that world and they drive right by the gospel and they are searching for more and more truth that is just around the corner. I mean, when you look at the corruption of the American seminary and American denominations, it starts at the top and it works its way down. Being smart doesn't insulate you from joining a heretical religious movement. Being wise does. You see, as a result, they drove right by the gospel and they'll never know the peace of having a right relationship with Christ. They will never be unburdened by having their sins forgiven. They'll never be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. They are targets, they are captured, their souls are insecure. All because they can't see what's plain in front of them. Which brings us to the third warning, which is you need to know the type. Verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these two men. Do you guys know who Janus and Jambres are? According to some extra-biblical sources, and it's kind of confirmed by this, they were the magicians on the Pharaoh's court. And remember, Moses makes an appearance before Pharaoh as let my people go, and to prove that he is of the Lord and they need to do what he says, he throws a staff to the ground and it turns into a snake. And do you remember what happens after that? The court magicians throw their staffs down and they also turn into snakes. And you might think, 
did they really turn into a snake? Did that really happen? I think it really did. Matthew 24, 24. Jesus talking about the end times. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. I think it's entirely possible for someone to do a genuine miracle under the power of Satan. Just because somebody's able to do a supernatural sign doesn't mean that you believe them. In fact, doctors who were close to the situation with Alexei Romanov actually said, you know what, I can't blame Tsarina Alexandra for thinking that this guy's doing miracles because we can't really explain how he's able to keep on healing him. But just because somebody gets something right, maybe does a miracle, even utters a prophecy, doesn't mean that you should follow them. In Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3, Moses says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, so this is a real miracle, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So you need to look at whether or not they are preaching a biblical message. You also need to look at their character as well. Verse 8 again, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They opposed the faith, they had a contrary message, and they were corrupted and they were defiled. No matter how nice and holy they seemed, they were on the wrong side. And that will become evident. Look at verse 9. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. Eventually, those guys got exposed. Sure, they're able to turn one, one staff into a snake, right? But as those plagues got increasingly more supernatural, their power could not keep pace with the power of God. They were exposed as a sham. I mean, with Rasputin, everyone, except for the royal family, it seemed, understood that the guy was a fraud. And patriotic Russians realized what a threat he was to the dynasty as he delegitimized it in the eyes of the public. And so they assassinated him. And that's an interesting story, which will be an illustration for another time, okay, if you know about it. They assassinated him because they knew he was a fraud, and when he stood before the Lord, it became evident to all. You give people enough time, it'll be very clear that these people do not know or serve the Lord. Perhaps we won't see it in this lifetime, but definitely in the life to come. You need to know the type. They're among us. They show themselves. And while we might be spooked at this reality, we need to understand that what man means for evil, God uses for good. And in 1 John 2.19, we see the good, quote-unquote, that false teachers do. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. 
Sometimes what false teachers do is they purify a church and get the tares to follow them out. And that is tragic. And it should cause us to be alarmed that we are not the ones duped into following those people. And really, one of the means that God uses to protect us is warnings like this. But also promises, like 1 John 4, 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. If you do what the Lord says, you will be protected. Right? And it goes beyond understanding the tactics, identify the targets, and knowing the type. There are some additional um, calls as well. Now, I know college is starting up, high school is starting up, a lot of young people in the room. You may not have a Rasputin in your life, but there is a whole world telling you how you should live your life. The same power that animated Rasputin animates this world and advocates worldliness. I came across a great definition of that, by the way. Worldliness, or the world, is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world and makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. Isn't that the truth? I'm going to read that last line. Is that which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. You're living in a world that is trying to unteach truth. I dropped off my baby girl at KU a week and a half ago, plunged her into Mordor, Mora, <laughs> you know, whatever you want to call it, right? And so I've, often, I've been thinking a lot about what do you do, how do you protect your faith in that kind of environment, in addition to what we just taught here. And, and I have three words of advice for you young people, or perhaps you displaced people who are kind of looking for a church home. The first thing you need to have is a high view of the church. Have a high view of the church. One of the things I tell young people is when you choose your friends, you choose your destiny. When you choose your friends, you choose your destiny. You need to make a determination of who are my people. Who are my people? And if you want to follow Christ, do you know who your people are? It's the church. 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Right? The church is a temple of God, is a spiritual family. We are all interconnected like bricks that build up a temple. And Jesus is the one who is building his church. And if you love Jesus, you're going to love what he loves. You'll hate what he hates. He hates sin, but you know what he also loves? He loves the church. And one of the reasons why he loves the church is the church protects his people. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The first step to apostasy is a diminishment of the church in your life. When you diminish the church in your life, when you step away from the church, that is one step closer to spiritual vulnerability. I mean, you guys ever watch those nature shows? I'm not sure if I root for the lions or the herd, but, but often some gazelle is lagging behind, doing his own thing, and is vulnerable and loses the protection of the herd. Church is here to protect you. Make it a priority to be as protected as possible, and not just showing up on Sunday, but to be interconnected with the people in this room so that they know you, they are known by you, they will miss you when you're gone. Secondly, in addition to having a high view of the church, you need a high view of doctrine. For some people, doctrine's a dirty word. It's just for ivory tower Bible nerds or people who just like to like, argue about stuff. And you may have been taught that, you know what? The goal of the Christian life is not to know doctrine, but to know Jesus. But here's a question. How do you know if you actually know Jesus? Is Jesus a hippie? Is Jesus the Son of God? Is Jesus God? Is Jesus man? If Jesus is God and man, how can that even be possible? Uh, How do you know that Jesus is not just some projection of your highest views of humanity? How do you know that you have the right information about Jesus? How do you know if the source of the information about Jesus is even true? Does God speak through the Bible or not? Can the Bible be trusted? Does God speak outside the Bible? All this to say, if you don't know the answer to these questions, some Jehovah Witnesses will knock on your door and have a field day with you. Right? No doctrine. No, what does the Bible teach about sexual morality? What does the Bible teach about the gospel? What does the Bible teach about how many ways there are to get to heaven? What does the Bible teach about itself? Be in a position where you learn doctrine. As you are growing up, you can't be content with with a VBS version of Christianity. As your thoughts get more sophisticated and more developed, especially as you are in college, your understanding of biblical doctrine needs to grow along with it. Treat Bible doctrine as one of your electives. Take it just as seriously. Thirdly, you need to have a high view of the gospel, right? And really, if you want to have true soul security, this is where it's at. The gospel. Romans 5.8, that God shows his own love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Right on the cross, Jesus died for our sin. He died the death we should have died after living the life we should have lived. And as a result, we can have a pardon and salvation from the Lord. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I had a chance to talk to a Catholic this past week, 
And I took him to this verse. And I told him, you know, the Catholic Church has taught a lot of truth. It has taught you about the Trinity. By and large, what it teaches about right and wrong and even sexual ethics and the importance of protecting the unborn, it teaches those as well. But here's the problem. As the Catholic Church teaches that to get to God, you have to go through the church. You have to do the rituals as prescribed by the church to get to God. And what God tells us is you don't need to go through the church, you go through Jesus Christ. And when you embrace Jesus Christ by faith, you will be saved. And there's all kinds of promises that come along with it. One of the great promises in all of Scripture is in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember how all those false teachers will exploit people and their guilt and being burdened by sin? How often sin kind of drives us underground and leaves us unaddressed and vulnerable? If you understand the gospel, you are no longer burdened by sin. There's no condemnation. It goes on to say in Romans 8, 14 through 16, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When you become a Christian, you become a child of God. That spirit of fear has no hold on you anymore. You can go to God the Father at any point in time. You don't have to be afraid. That's soul security. So here's my challenge. I'm not sure where all of you are on this. Some of you might be here because your parents are forcing the issue. Some of you are here just because you're curious. But you have not made a firm decision or commitment to follow Jesus. There are two rulers vying for your soul. We learn of one in Ephesians 2.2 in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is a description of every non-Christian. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience. And you're thinking, listen, I'm not a Wiccan. I don't worship Satan. I mean, I may not worship Jesus, but I don't worship Satan. Satan doesn't need you to explicitly worship him. All that he wants is for you to reject Jesus. As long as you are rejecting Jesus as your Lord, you are doing the will of Satan. He may not need to send a Rasputin in your direction. He's already got you. And at the end of your days, your continual rejection of Jesus will be met with disapproval by God the Father and eternal rejection from Him. That is one path you can take. Your soul is not secure. But if, on the other hand, you turn away from Satan, you understand that he is a thief, 
a murderer and a liar from the beginning. You understand that when Jesus calls you to follow him, to pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow him, that you will have eternal life. And you commit your life to follow Jesus forever. Your soul will be secure. Ultimately, all of these threats, all of these dangers, they are used of the Lord to drive us one direction. It's to drive us into the arms of Jesus Christ and find soul security in him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us, for the security you offer us. And I pray for anyone here who has been touched by this, who understands the need for the first time perhaps to commit their hearts and their lives to you that they will do so right now. That they will deny themselves, pick up their cross, and make a personal commitment to follow you forever. We thank you for the security that has been given to us in so many ways, and we pray that you'll protect this flock and that you'll use this flock to spread the good news of the gospel and protect others as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.